Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. Great to see you today. Uh, if you're visiting, my name's Alex. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. It's not usually quite uh, like this. It's more condensed than it usually is. Usually with two services, it's more spread out, and it's just beautiful to see so many faces together. I loved watching people, because I get to see people from this vantage point most weeks, and I loved watching people who sit in the same seat every <laughs> week suddenly have this moment of revelation of like, oh, there's a nine o'clock version of me, or there's a 1045 version of me, and they got here earlier. Uh, so next week, you guys have to get here earlier. You guys have to be the one. And, and so, so maybe your question is, why are we doing this? And, and the answer isn't that we wanted to work less on Sunday for a couple of weeks. It, it was actually just the beauty of doing what we could to see the community gathered. Now, now this is some of it. It's not all of it. We have the, the people that work in the food bank and the clients that come to the food bank that come and are served there. That's part of South. We have Celebrate Recovery, this place that is doing the work of the church that meets on Tuesday night. We have groups that meet in the homes, so we can never replicate that, but you get to feel just a little bit more today, perhaps, what kind of community that you're part of. Maybe, maybe see some people that you thought, I didn't realize you still came here. I kind of lost you in the dual service thing. It's so good to see see you here today, there's all of those things that are going on to this. And we're in a season where for three weeks we get to talk about what is the vision of the church? How are we doing community life together? And that's beautiful when done in one place. Andy Stanley says this, vision is about what could be and should be. It's this idea of, of hope of something that isn't created yet, but could be created in the future. And, and so many of you guys, you felt this in your individual lives, my guess is this summer. How, how many people took a road trip this summer? Just throw a hand up, road trip people, few of you. How, how many of you, your road trip was over five hours? Five hours? How many were over 10 hours? Still some people. How many were over 15 hours? How many of you were glad you could afford to fly and you made that choice? <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, we just did a road trip, uh, my family and I, and, and it was 17 hours long, so it was up there. And, uh, and I had this moment where I was planning this trip and I said, you know what, uh, Laura, why don't you and Leo, why don't you fly to Minneapolis? And I'm gonna pick you up with the older kids on the way. I pictured just this really just beautiful trip of just, just me and the older kids just hanging out, just having fun. We'd stop overnight. Uh, and, and, and so I said that, and Laura said, are you crazy? And I said, no, I really think this is a good idea. And, and to be honest, I, I really did. And then there were just moments in the trip where I just regretted some of the life choices I had made, or, or one in particular. One of the moments was this moment. Um, it was the moment I got to Nebraska, to be honest. It just, uh, some Nebraska people, I just felt flat. Because it's flat. <laughs> And, 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 and I realized, like, just, just it's hard being the one person. I, I, for you single parents out there, I have so much respect for you. To be the driver and the person that hands out the snacks and the person that cleans up the spills and the person that catches the vomit and all of those things, 
it's hard work. Like it's too much for any one person. We got to Chick-fil-A and they say Chick-fil-A makes everything better. It doesn't if you throw it up 10 minutes later. Uh, and so no names mentioned, but, but that was the kind of trip. So I took a picture of my own face as I got towards the end of this trip. Uh, and that's, not, that's just a genuine emotion. I very rarely feel like that, but on this trip I did. So as I'm making this like quest, what keeps me going? It's hope, right? The hope of what could be and perhaps even what should be. It's, it's hope that there's moments like this. And there's moments like this. First little fish that he caught. And just for you vegetarians out there, no fish was hurt in the making of this <laughs> montage. Fish went back, way too small to keep. It was moments like this of just peace, of quiet, moments of family life. It's, it's, it's those things that keep you going through the 15, 16, 17 hours of Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota. It's the hope that we'll get there in the end. Uh, someone once said, vision is rare. Realized vision is even rarer. And so as we sketch out vision for the community, there will be moments when you might rightly say, the church doesn't do that right now. We should but we don't, and I would say yes, you are right. That is exactly what vision is. There's always moments where you're like, oh, if only we were doing that. So what I'd like to invite you into is a prayer in this moment for all of the things that you hope church could be, all of the church things that you want it to be and, and it isn't, all of the ways that you see flickerings of what it could be. This is a prayer that was articulated hundreds of years ago by a guy called Francis Drake. So let's read it together. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. There are so many things that are possible in the local church. As we wrestle with this sermon today, of course, if you have questions, we'd love to hear them and we'd love to address them on our podcast because this is just the beginning of unpacking some of that. We have a vision or, or at least a mission that we have described on the wall. You got to see it in the video. It's living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. It's beautiful and it's quick and it's pithy and it could be any church in the world, at least hopefully. When we began with that idea of does, uh, of does the church matter, the answer is yes, if. If churches genuinely live in the way of Jesus, if they don't, maybe it is better for them to close down, but churches that live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus are still necessary in this world, still necessary in this world of, of wildfires, of school shootings, of depression, of anxiety, of all of those different elements. The church is still the hope of the world, it still has so much to offer, but only, only if it lives into those things. And at times, if we're honest, we've probably seen the church do that badly rather than well. There's many of us that found a home itself because we've wrestled with those moments where we've said, no, that isn't what church is supposed to be. We do hope for something more. But it, it may be an astute question in that moment. It's like, well, when you say the way of Jesus, what exactly do you mean? Because surely that's pretty broad. There's lots in that. Do we mean the part of like blind men seeing, of lame men walking? Do, do we mean the part of uh, transformation of those on the margins? 
Do we mean the moment of the resurrection of the dead? And the answer is yes. All of those things are included in living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus and so much more. But in this season, what I did for us last year is sketched out three pathways that I think in this moment will help us do that better. It doesn't mean that the thing that you're passionate about isn't important. It doesn't mean if it's not in there, we've just thrown it out. But these are three things that I see as principles that Jesus lives by that maybe at times we've missed as a church. So yes, we are living in the way of, uh, the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus, but, but we're doing that through environments that feel like coming home. Experiences that help people encounter Jesus and take next steps. And becoming a church, our city and world would miss if we were gone. Somewhere with Jesus, I see these beautiful principles of hospitality and transformation and mission that undergird these three things. I see the ways that he makes that happen. And and this week, we land on that idea of hospitality. I would argue as a thesis, before we get into a text, that the earliest churches reflected Jesus' heart for hospitality. It's what he did, he welcomed in those that were on the margins. In actual fact, even better, you might argue he moved the center to the margins in this beautiful way. The the word hospitality and interestingly, the word hospital come from this Latin word hospitalis. Simply means in a literal sense, a a room for a guest. Opening your home both in the medical sense and in the sense of welcoming in a visitor. That that is true of both of those things. The the phrase mi casa e su casa actually typifies it perfectly. There's that idea of more than a house. It's a home. In J.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, he describes the last homely house as a perfect house, whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. You might well have experienced that feeling of a house becoming a home. Or maybe you lost a home and had to move into a house. And there was this tension where you said, it just doesn't feel like home right now. Somewhere there's the idea that the church is supposed to become home. It becomes a place where you are known, where you are valued, where you are wanted, where before anything changes, you get to belong. Before your behavior looks different, you get to belong. Before you've done anything, you get to belong just because you belong. Jesus had this incredible way of doing that with and for people. Hospitality wasn't new to Jesus. In actual fact, it was written all over the Old Testament in Ezekiel's damning indictment of the city of Sodom. The thing he mentions first is fascinating. He says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. That's what he says about the city of Sodom. They didn't show hospitality to people that needed hospitality. The text that we're gonna look at today is one that I find fascinating. There's a tweak to it that I'm gonna offer that I think just reveals some of our need to offer hospitality and interestingly, the thing that I think stops me doing it so often. So as you look at a text that is probably familiar to so many of you, just think about it through this slightly different lens. In Luke chapter 10, if you'd like to turn to it, verse 25, we read this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. 
Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Pretty standard first century question. He's not asking, how can I go to some spatial heaven place when I die? He's asking, how can I be physically resurrected? When, when everything changes in this world, how can I be part of the new thing that God is doing? And Jesus gives him an answer. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Now again, reading as a 21st century person, we might say something like, well, didn't they know the law? Didn't everyone agree on what the law was? And and the answer to that is yes and no, because the law that they had was big and broad. And, And you guys, at least adults, you know this feeling too, because you make decisions about the law all the time. How many of you have done this? I mean like the real version, not like the wax work thing, but how many of you have held up a bank? Anybody? There's a couple of hands up. I love that there's a couple of hands up. That's that's a wonderful community that that has hopefully reformed bank robbers. (laughs) Hopefully reformed. You don't still do it, do you? You don't generally hold up banks, but how many of you would say you have a struggle with signs like this? <laughs> Lots of hands, I love the honesty. I've struggled with these for years. When I first moved to America, I got pulled over within a couple of weeks and the police officer came, it's a different experience here getting pulled over. It's like the blue and reds, it's intimidating. It's, they're far nicer back in England. And he walked to my car and he said, can I have your license and registration? And I said, I don't know what a registration is, but here is my license and handed him my British driver's license, which was all I had. And he said, what's this? And I said, well, it's a driving license. It just happens to be from a different country. And I watched this look on his face of, uh, that can only be described as confusion. Uh, And he went and he sat back in his car and left me there for 10 minutes. I just sat waiting. And he came back over and he handed me his license and he said, huh, well, sure you have laws in your country. You probably obey them there. Be nice if you obeyed our laws as well. And then he left (laughs) with no ticket or anything. And I thought, is it always going to be this easy? This is amazing. Like, this is just... Now, once I got an American license, I got a couple of tickets again within the next year. But, But I've always struggled with this. I make decisions over which laws I think are the most valuable. And and I make decisions all the time about what's the spirit of this law. Like, it's probably not 40. It's probably 47 or 52. Or (laughs) I I make those decisions, and you might make those decisions as well. A similar process went on in the first century in Israel. There were different laws, and people valued them in different ways. And really here, Jesus is saying, well, which is the valuable law? How do you read the law? And the guy gives a brilliant answer. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, this is the Shema that every Jewish male would say twice a day. It's the heartbeat of the law code. And love your neighbor as yourself. A fascinating law tucked away in Leviticus chapter 19, in amongst laws about purity, in amongst laws about how to manage a household. There's this incredible command, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And the conversation could easily end there. But it's made compelling by the next question. Because this guy can't let it go. He can't stop there. 
He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And he wants to know how small he can make it. Who can I rule out? Who can I drive past? Who can I not feed? How can I limit this to just a few people? And this is where we get Jesus' story. The preacher Jared Wilson said, once a man came telling stories and those stories had the essence of life and that's what Jesus' parables are. One day we'll do a parable series and we'll get to go into all the past details of what parables mean and where they come from, but we don't have time for that today. I don't even have time for what I was going to say, let alone uh, to add something else in. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. This is a picture of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It drops down at about 200 feet per mile. It's a terrible road. It was known as the way of blood because people were attacked and beaten there all the time. This is not an unfamiliar story to the people that are hearing it for the first time. And then he begins to unpack what happens next. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he went to the, came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. So first we have a priest, second we have this character, a Levite, a priest, and a Levite. And every Jewish person knows what's coming next because it always works the same way. In actual fact, it's not just Jewish people that this is true of, but almost all people, their stories happen in threes. Think about all the stories that you know, the story of what? The three little pigs. The three musketeers, Snap, Crackle, and Pop. There's all of these different characters that appear in threes. It goes on and on and on. Jokes always work in threes. Something about it builds attention. There's a stand-up comedian that tells a wonderful story about how his dad didn't like him growing up. He said, my dad just didn't seem to like me, didn't really do much stuff with me at all, but he did take me fishing once. And I thought, as I swam back to shore, I don't really like swimming. Took me to play golf. And as I swam back to shore, I thought, golf's a lot like fishing. But he did love Halloween. And he would take me trick-or-treating every year. I got to be Snoopy. And as I swam back to shore, I thought, this Snoopy costume is really heavy when it's wet. It builds and builds theoretically. Of course, not when I tell it, it gets flatter when I tell it, but when he tells it, it builds. And the third moment is the one, the pinnacle. And this is what happens in Jesus' story. It's supposed to end in a specific way. And it's supposed to say a priest, a Levite, and an ordinary Israelite. An everyday person gets to be the hero of this story. That's how it should work. We get to see this in our society too. If you like music, you might know that there's become a popular trade of people turning up at gigs with signs that say, can I play drums or can I play guitar on this song? It's usually drums because it's an easy instrument to play. It's the, the, the instrument you can most like, easily fake that you're actually good at what you do. And so we get these moments where the killers invited Jose Luis, this unknown person, up to play in front of 65,000 people, a dream of his that he'll never have a chance to achieve again. This is how these stories work. In these, in these historic stories, always an everyday Israelite is the one that is... Is, is back, uh, that is the hero, but not in this story. Jesus subverts this story, and in his version, a Samaritan is the hero. 
a person that nobody wanted to be the hero. The Jewish people, in one of their writings, had a saying about Samaritans. It goes something like this. Two people I hate, a third is not even a human being. The people of Sir, Philistines, and those foolish people in Shechem, a South Samaritan city. There was a, 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 a way of despising the Samaritans that didn't compare to anything else. But this Samaritan in Jesus' story becomes the hero. As he traveled, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring out oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Uh, The beautiful thing about parables is they invite you into them. You don't get to pick necessarily which parable you're experiencing at the moment but you do get to pick the person you want to be in the parable. And Jesus brilliantly offers us these different characters that we might be in a moment of crisis, a moment of need, a moment where we pass by someone who needs that help. He offers us a priest and a Levite, and we get to choose do we follow their example. And he offers us the Samaritan, the outsider's example, and we get to choose whether we follow him. And there's this compelling moment in the middle of it, this, this language, he took pity on him, is this Greek word, spagloknon. It's a, allowing compassion to get a hold of him is a good way of understanding it. But for years, people have wrestled with this in this parable. What's the point? Really, what's the point of it? And for the first 500 years of the church life, a group of writers, the patristic fathers said, actually, it's just an allegory for salvation. You and I are the beaten people on the side of the road. The Jewish people and the Levite, the, the, Israel, the priest, they represent legal systems, ways of trying to get to God. And the Samaritan comes along and he offers something different. And, and in this reading, Jesus himself is the Samaritan who didn't walk by us when we both needed him. And of course, there's some truth to that reading, but it's not been the popular reading for about 1,500 years now. The, the, the second one has been that it's a guide to determining legal precedence, how you decide which law is most important. In this reading, uh, the priest gets a pretty generous reading. The priest gets to be noted for observing a, a legal precedent that we may not be familiar with, that you should never touch a corpse. In Numbers 31, verse 19, it says, anyone who has killed someone or touched someone who was killed must stay outside the camp for seven days. On the third and seventh day, you must purify yourselves and your captives. In this reading, the priest gets a pass on leaving the guy on the side of the road because, well, he's just obeying the law as he understands it. Fairly horrific reading of the law, admittedly, but he still gets a pass. But this reading misses something. It misses out the Levite, who had no reason not to stop and help someone on the side of the road, who didn't need to worry about missing temple service. It, it misses out his responsibility. In fact, it may not be a good reading at all, because the best reading of this seems to be the broadest reading and the reading that challenges me the most and you might find challenges you the most. That reading is this, that it's talking about the nature of kingdom values. What is the values system behind this kingdom of God that you and I are called to participate in? Carl Snodgrass said this, the kingdom breaks abruptly into one's consciousness and demands the overturn of values. There's ways we want to act, ways we think we should get to act, and the kingdom says no. 
It's moments where we're tempted to be fearful, and the kingdom says you're called to be brave. Moments where we want to be selfish, and the kingdom says you're supposed to be selfless. selfless. Moments where we're tempted to be hurried and rushed. The kingdom tells us we're supposed to be slow. There's all of these different ways that the kingdom comes along and challenge our values. What's beautiful about this reading is this, is that this parable is, is notably, intentionally, I would say, unspecific. It doesn't say that the priest was rushing off because he had to be at the temple. It doesn't say he was rushing because he was worried or rushed past because he wanted to protect himself from being contaminated. It doesn't give any of those details. It simply says that this man and the Levite were too busy to stop for someone who desperately needed their help. And then he asks us this, how many times do we do exactly the same? Not, not perhaps someone lying on the side of the road, that might be a rarity in the neighborhoods that you and I live in, but in just the everyday world, in this world that it is inhospitable, how often do we deny hospitality simply because we're too busy to stop? too important to stop. This parable goes after our value system in this perhaps brutal way. It grabs our attention and says, which of these characters are you in different moments? And, and honestly, I would say I've been all of them at different times. Just so happened that once I was challenged by this parable in a moment I was teaching on the parable. I worked in a church that was well off the grid. We were about six miles from the nearest town. We never had anybody turn up just unannounced. And this one moment as I was about to teach the parable of the Good Samaritan, a man walked down the driveway with a can for petrol in his hand. I loved, loved thinking through, would I have stopped and helped him had I not been teaching this parable? But I felt in that moment, how can I not stop? But I bet on any other day teaching another sermon, I could easily have said something like, I'm just too busy to help right now. Somebody else will come along who's probably less important in this moment. It would have been so easy to do. The parable of the Good Samaritan presents hospitality to those in need as a test of society's welcome of Jesus. It challenges my perception of who deserves my notice. It demands that my busy life give way to the needs of fellow travelers on the road. Carl Snodgrass goes on to say this, actually being present with people and actually seeing them is expected of followers of Jesus. It's expected. When we think about creating a, an environment that feels like coming home, we're supposed to notice people. We're not supposed to miss people. We're supposed to be looking out for those that need a friendly word, that those that need a hug, that those that need community. That's, that's our role. Introvert and extrovert alike, it might change your capacity. Doesn't change your call. Doesn't change your call. And yet, the reality is, were busy people. Sigmund Freud, the writer, actually said that loving one's neighbor is neither desirable nor possible. He said, don't do it. How can you possibly step into that role? How can you offer that kind of care? And everything pragmatically in me says, yes, you're absolutely right. It is just too hard. 
And I am too busy. The other day, my wife and I had a conversation about calendaring, and we talked about finding a couple of extra days for something important. And there was this moment where I said, no, another thing I can't do, another thing I can't think about, another thing. So I'm deeply aware that you might find this to be true just as I do. Busy is the enemy of hospitality. We are busy people, life just moves at this frenetic pace. The writer, singer Dave Matthews says this in his song, uh, Ants Marching, driving in on this highway, all these cars and up on the sidewalk, people in every direction, no words exchanged, no time to exchange them. When all the little ants are marching, red and black antennas waving, they all do it the same, they all do it the same way. It's this expression of the frenetic pace of life that just keeps on moving. And what is true is this in our moments of busyness, we are likely perhaps, wired perhaps, to make horrendous decisions about other people around us. Recently in the news, uh, there's been story of a climber on K2 who was trying to break a record for the fastest ascent of the mountain. The story is that she walked over another guide who was dying on the mountain to break the record. Speed will make you jettison everybody who gets in the way of that speed. Some years ago, there was a similar accident on Everest. One of the climbing groups did leave somebody to die, and when asked why, they simply said this. We were too tired to help. Above 28,000 feet, you cannot afford morality. You cannot afford morality. Perhaps that's how you feel about life, because it's how I feel about life. At times, I'm gasping for breath with so much to do, and it's easy to just bypass people really easy to bypass people. When speed is your goal, you will rush from anything that can slow you down. How can we live out Jesus' parable? How can we be the person I suspect every one of us wants to be in the parable when we're just so busy? And then I came across a quote that challenged my sense of busyness and maybe ask a question that I think might help you, especially in a season when we're saying, admittedly as a church, be involved in things, take your busy lives and make them busier. This is the very wonderful Dallas Willard. He said this, being busy is mostly a condition of our outer world. It is having many things to do. Being hurried is a problem of the soul. It's being so preoccupied with myself and what myself has to do that I'm no longer able to be fully present with God and fully present with you. There is no way a soul can thrive when it is hurried. Hurried is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. It's this beautiful invitation to look at a life and say, yes, of course, I'm busy. And perhaps even this, perhaps I'm supposed to be somewhat busy. But there's a difference, perhaps, between being busy and hurrying. When you're hurrying, you make bad decisions. When you're hurrying, you find yourself scratching around at multiple things at the same time, just trying to get the thing done that you want to get done, and yet you find yourself often doing none of the things that you're supposed to be doing. Multiple things go kind of done and kind of undone. This invites us to a way of living that perhaps allows us to stop when we need to stop, that allows us to notice the difference between things that are urgent and things that are important. And so perhaps it's truer to say this, that hurry is the enemy of hospitality. Not busy, but hurry. 
As I started to scratch around, I found all sorts of different writings about this subject that identify the difference between busy and hurried, and it seems that this is something that so many people have jumped on now. This is Wayne Mueller. A successful life has become a violent enterprise. We make war on our own bodies, pushing them beyond their limits, war on our children, because we cannot find enough time to be with them when they are hurt and afraid and need our company. War in our spirit because we are too preoccupied to listen to the quiet voices that seek to nourish and refresh us. War in our communities because we are fearfully protecting what we have and do not feel safe enough to be kind and generous. War on the earth because we cannot take the time to place our feet on the ground and allow it to feed us, to taste its blessings and give thanks. Soren Kierkegaard, in the way that only Soren Kierkegaard could say it, said this, of all the ridiculous things, the most ridiculous seems to me to be brisk, to be a man who is brisk about his food and his work. Therefore, whenever I see a fly settling in the decisive moment on the nose of such a person of affairs, or if he's splattered with mud from a carriage which drives past him in still greater haste, or the drawbridge opens up before him, or a tile falls down and knocks him dead, then I laugh heartily. Very sorry, Kierkegaard, if you know him at all, but, but he gets to that point of like, no, that's no way to live. It's not how we're designed. Leo Tolstoy talks about a man who was always in a hurry to get to where he was not. Somewhere it seems like this beautiful way of Jesus that he exemplifies so well, that he lives out so well, allows us to be busy because Jesus was constantly busy. But read through the Gospels and ask yourself this, do I ever see Jesus hurried? The answer is never. Busy, yes. Hurried, no. Jesus goes about the work of saving the world in this slow, methodical, and generous way that allows him to stop for those on the side of the road, to care for those on the margins, to notice the one amongst the many. And what I've come to suggest in my own life perhaps is this that busy is sometimes a choice. You don't always get to decide that, but it seems like hurried is always a choice. Hurried is always a choice. Perhaps underneath our frenetic pace is a question. Is this work I do good enough, or perhaps even more, perhaps am I good enough? And yet somewhere we're called to be busy people. Frederick Beekner famously said, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. In those places, you can be busy. You can live into the kingdom of God. You can stop for the traveler on the side of the road, but you get to do it without hurry. And so perhaps in the season where there's so many things asked of you, so many school events, both as kids and as parents, so many opportunities to serve, so much work to be done, so many things on offer, perhaps you might ask this question, what is mine to do? What would the God of the universe have you be involved in in this season? And when you step into that, know that it might make you busier, but it doesn't have to make you more hurried. That there is a way to live as Jesus lives, that lives busy, but does it in this unhurried way, simply because he knows who he is and who he is called to be. Reminder again that that word hospitality comes from this word hospitalis, is to create room, to create a home perhaps for someone. 
the idea of mi casa es su casa, is, is actually an offer of turning a house that you walk into into your own home, your own place to be. And doesn't that sound like something church should be? It's supposed to be this place to call home, place to belong. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, however many banks you have robbed, you get to belong here. Because this God, both in Jesus and eternally, sets the lonely into families. And he does it over and over again. So a question for contemplation in the midst of your busyness is what is mine to do in your kingdom that provides a home? What is mine to do in your kingdom that provides a home? God, in this season where we're asking ourselves, how do we be involved? How do we serve? How do we play a part in this place you have called us? And right now we sit as a community of people that you've called together. We may not know why you've called us together, and yet you did. And so God, as we ask, what is mine? How can I play a part? How can I turn this house you have given us into a home? Help us to hear your voice, to know that you speak to us, and that you love us, even when we get it wrong. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.